Welcome to Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, an educational podcast for individuals needing long-term care and their families. Join us as we talk with national experts and advocates about strategies you can use in the pursuit of quality long-term care. Few lawsuits make it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. However, one brought by the family of Georgie Talbeski did just that, and they won. The Talbeski case decision is important in that it addresses the rights of nursing home residents, their ability to sue a state-run, publicly-owned nursing home, and addresses the importance of the Nursing Home Reform Act in establishing the standard of care. In this episode, we discuss the lawsuit, the Supreme Court decision, and what this means for residents. Hi, thanks for joining us and welcome to today's episode of Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care, the podcast of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. And we're glad to have you with us today. I'm Lori Smetenka. I'm the Executive Director. And we are here today to talk about an important case that was really decided by the United States Supreme Court focused on um, nursing home issues and uh, protecting the rights of people that are living in long-term care facilities. And our special guest today, are Toby Edelman, who is a senior policy attorney with the Center for Medicare Advocacy, Mame Giamfi, um, with the who is also a senior uh, attorney with AARP Foundation Litigation, and Susie Tulevsky, who um, is the plaintiff, was the plaintiff in the original lawsuit that we're going to be talking about today. And um, she and her family uh, sued on behalf of her father, who had um, been a victim of abuse in a nursing home case, and um, and based on the persistence of her of her family and uh, belief in what they were doing was right, continued with the case, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And that's not something we can say every day, isn't that right? So, um, so. Uh, in this case, the United States Supreme Court recently ruled that the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act confers certain rights on nursing home residents and that in certain cases, citizens who have been deprived of their rights can file a lawsuit against the state. And so we're going to be talking about this case today and what that means for um, residents and facilities and how um, we all need to be thinking about this. And so let's first start with you, Susie. Welcome first to all three of you. So glad that you can be with us today and, and for joining us. And so Susie, let's start with you. Um, your family brought this case initially. Tell us briefly what led to your filing of the lawsuit. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify, clarify. I was actually the attorney that brought the case. Um, Sorry about that, my, Susie. My parents were the plaintiffs. Georgie was the original plaintiff. And then my mother um, took over once he passed away. Um, so um, what led to this lawsuit was um, the what I would call the abuse and neglect of my father in a local nursing home, home called Valparaiso Care and Rehabilitation, which is owned by the Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County uh, and is operated by their private partner, American Senior Communities. Um, you know, we had a, a list of uh, various um, violations of the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act in the original complaint. Uh, but once the case was dismissed in the district court, when we took it up on appeal to the Seventh Circuit, we chose to uh, pursue only the two most um, important substantial claims, the uh, prohibition against chemical restraint and the prohibition against involuntary transfer, also known as patient dumping. So mm -hmm. um, that's essentially what happened. I'm mean, gonna tell you a little bit of the background of what happened to him, if you, if you wanna know that. Um, 
Sure. How, yeah. how deep just, you want me to get into this? Yeah, just briefly, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, just in summary, my dad was at this local nursing home and we noticed that he was deteriorating very quickly. We asked the staff what was going on with him. They said it was the progression of the disease. But I eventually found out that, in fact, he was being given um, heavy doses of uh, psychotropic medication, psychiatric medication. And once I found that out, I got him assistance to taper that medication down, and he slowly came back to life. I made a complaint to the Indiana State Department of Health uh, for the chemical restraint, which really they didn't do anything about it. Um, But a few months later, they started sending my dad out to a uh, neuropsychiatric hospital an hour and a half away in a very small town um, called Bremen, Indiana, in a different time zone. It's in the Eastern time zone to the East. And uh, they did this three times uh, sequentially. On the third time, they abandoned him there and they left him there. Uh, So when I mean sequentially, you know, he'd be there for a couple of weeks, he'd be sent back and then he'd be at the nursing home like maybe a day or two and they'd send him right back. So they did this three times and then they, um, they didn't give us really any notice. He was supposed to come back on January 9th, which was on Monday. They called us on late Friday afternoon to say they're not readmitting him, which was a real shock. And so that is what uh, led to this very, very long uh, legal odyssey of mine that I never ever couldn't, could have anticipated would have led to the United States Supreme Court. So um, that's, that's the case in a nutshell. <laughs> sure. Well, and it's, you know, there are issues that you, your father and your mother and, and your whole family dealt with that these are common issues that, you know, we hear about regularly. I think, you know, for all of us on, on this call today, um, we've all heard similar stories to what your family experienced. And, uh, and I think, you know, that's one of the things that certainly caught our attention as well, you know, as we talked with you, you know, throughout throughout this whole time frame. Is these are issues that a lot of people are experiencing in long term care, and um, at the crux of this suit is the Nursing Home Reform Act, and that's you know the violations of which you mentioned. Um, so, Toby, let's turn to you. Let's talk a little bit about what the Nursing Home Reform Act is. Why was it enacted, and what does it cover? Okay, well, we've had nursing homes in the country for a very long time. Originally, they were mostly owned by nonprofits or what we'll call mom and pops, just little local facilities. In the mid-60s, we got Medicare and Medicaid. And with Medicare and Medicaid came an enormous infusion of a lot of money, millions and billions of dollars. And with the infusion of money came tremendous problems in quality of care. So in the 70s, not even 10 years into the Medicare and Medicaid law, the Senate Special Committee on Aging issued a series of reports called Failure in Nursing Home Care, Failure in Public Policy. There was one about insufficient numbers of staff, one about lack of doctors in nursing homes, one about misuse of medications by nursing homes, uh, issues that are very familiar to us today. And what Susie just said about her father getting psychotropic medications inappropriately. So those reports came out, they were followed by a lot of federal and state reports. Uh, But the immediate impetus for the nursing home reform law was deregulation that had been proposed by the Reagan administration starting in 1981. That led Congress, which was at that point controlled by Democrats, to stop the deregulation. And finally, a compromise that there would be no change in federal regulations until what was called the Institute of Medicine 
did its report, did a study and issued a report. And we, were, we didn't know what the IOM was, but we thought, okay, nothing would happen for a while. That was great. And that went on. They studied for a couple of years. They issued a report in 1986. Congress held hearings. So based on the hearings, based on the IOM's recommendations, and also recommendations of the Campaign for Quality Care, which was organized by Consumer Voice under its prior name, National Citizens Coalition for Nursing Home Reform, all of those things came together and became the nursing home reform law. It's a very long law, extremely detailed, and it basically changed everything about nursing homes. The standards of care that nursing homes have to meet, the survey process to determine whether facilities are meeting those care standards, and the enforcement system. What do you do if facilities are not meeting the standards? The standards were incredibly important. They enshrined residents' rights in federal law. We had never had that before. And they created, to me, one of the most important things, an entitlement in each resident to high-quality care. Facilities are required to provide care and services to each resident to attain and maintain the highest possible physical and mental and psychosocial well-being. And that's important. It's not just did you feed some of the residents some of the time? No, every single person is entitled to high quality care. So that's our law. That's, that's what we are supposed to be uh, implementing. And it's, it's been in effect since 1990. And, and I think, you know, that is really the critical piece that you said that each resident is entitled to these services, um, which, you know, I was talking to um, some folks, you know, recently about this and, um, and why this was so important. And again, you know, you don't want to think about, you know, well, if, if some residents, you know, are fed or most residents are fed, and, but you're not one of them, <laughs> you know, you, you have the same rights as everyone else living in this facility. And so you, you are entitled um, to all of the, that care and services as well. Well, we know that this was really important, that entitlement to each resident was important because when um, Gingrich had his contract um, for America and they were changing the Medicare and Medicaid law, what they did to the, to the nursing home law was say, change each resident to residents. They said, we're just fine tuning it. That was the industry proposal. And I said, it's not fine tuning, it. it's gutting it. The essence right. of it is each resident's entitlement. Absolutely. You know, one thing I wanted to mention was with when Toby was talking about the really importance with which the Nursing Home Reform Act put to the residents' rights, there were two rights in particular that I wanted to just point out only because they're at the crux of this case and they're what Susie was talking about earlier happened to her father, but as well, um, what Lori would mention earlier, we're all very familiar with. And the two rights I'm talking about first is the right to be free of chemical restraints that are imposed for the purpose of discipline or for staff's convenience and not required for a medical to treat a medical condition and second, the right to not be transferred or discharged from a facility unless the facility follows specific um, procedures in very narrow circumstances. And the reason why I wanna specifically point out those rights, right, is because it was incredibly powerful that the Bill of Rights and these residents were given these rights, right, because it actually showed that the nursing facilities had to promote and protect the rights. So it wasn't just that rights were created and just put down the law and that was it, you know, people can walk away, but people actually had to enforce these rights. And in fact, one of the things um, that's very distressing and very um, 
discerning, discerning interest is that in fact, many nursing facility residents are living in facilities that do violate these rights. And when they violate these rights, um, it's not a situation where it's one or two or you know the odd thing, but actually in fact, for many facilities it's pervasive. Um, they've had reports from the House Ways and Means Committee and other committees that actually show how broadly this happens. I also wanna talk about in terms of illegal um, discharges and illegal transfers from nursing facilities. You know, when I first came to my job, one of the first um, cases that I had and one of the first cases I heard about were having nursing facilities that were actually, um, as Susie said, patient dumping and dumping people into homeless shelters, dumping people into parks, dumping people into motels for a week. So um, this is a really huge problem. And in fact, during the pandemic, as we all knew, the pandemic really harmed a lot of nursing facility residents in terms of their treatment and patient dumping was a huge, huge issue then as well. Absolutely, and, and continues to be to this day. Um, you know, we know that the patient dumping and Ill, inappropriate discharges is, has been the number one complaint received by ombudsman programs for at least a decade now. Um, and so these continue to be really big issues. So, you know, we've got these rights, we've got them in law, they even say, you know, their rights. So why was there a question about whether or not um, Susie's family could bring this lawsuit? And mommy, let's start with you and uh, Susie and Toby, feel free to jump in. Well, I think a couple of things. So first of all, um, the court in this case was looking at two really important issues. The first issue was whether nursing facility residents could sue and get relief in federal court when a government-run facility violates their right to be free of the illegal chemical restraints and illegal discharges. Sorry, illegal and illegal discharges. Um, the reason why um, there was a question about why whether the nursing facility residents could actually bring a lawsuit in federal court to enforce these rights is because the act as it's written did not have a standalone provision that gave a private right of action or basically be, it didn't give instructions for how a nursing facility resident should go about um, enforcing this right. However, for decades, laws similar to this, um, what they call laws that were created under the spending clause that might not specifically in the law talk about the procedure for decades, people have used section 1983 to actually um, go to court to be able to enforce these rights. And section 1983 does provide a mechanism for individuals to sue in federal court against any person acting, and they say under the color of state law, meaning any kind of state actor who deprives a person of their rights that have been guaranteed by a law of the United States. And therefore it was entirely appropriate for um, Susie and her family um, to actually pursue a case under section 1983 in the federal court to enforce her father's rights to be free of chemical restraints and illegal discharges as guaranteed by the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act. So in fact, um, the reason why there was a question um, is because it was being pursued under section 1983 um, but really, there was a question because it had been challenged to the Supreme Court, um, because, in fact, the Seventh Circuit, as Susie mentioned, and then also the Ninth Circuit, other circuits who had looked at this issue, 
had also found that in fact the residents did have the right to enforce their rights in the federal courts. So that was the first key issue that the Supreme Court was looking at. And then I just wanna also mention that the second issue that the Supreme Court looked at because what the nursing facility um, appealed it, it was a broader issue, which was not only focused on can nursing facility residents bring an action like this under the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act using section 1983, but they actually broadened it to say other laws that were similar, that were also done under the spending clause of the constitution, could those people even bring an action under section 1983 to enforce their rights? And so what happened when that was actually added is there was a sense that there was a whole slew of other people who now the Supreme Court's decision was going to affect. So it wasn't only going to be affecting nursing facility residents, it was gonna be affecting other Medicaid beneficiaries. It was gonna be potentially expecting SNAP beneficiaries. So all of a sudden there was a whole slew of extremely vulnerable people who really rely on the ability to be able to go into federal court when their rights are being violated, who now their ability to enforce their rights were being placed at risk. So this was an incredibly important case that was going before the Supreme Court. And so Susie, I'm sure that um, you and your family were in contact with, as you were working through and, and this additional issue got added in, just not just focused on the nursing home advocates, but I'm sure you were hearing from a lot of other people as well um, that were representing people who relied on these other services and these other uh, benefits. Yes, yes, we heard from many, many different organizations, <laughs> many national advocacy organizations, civil rights organizations, disability rights organizations, women's right, rights organizations. Um, and the consensus was that uh, since there was not a circuit split, there were three circuits, as uh, Mommy mentioned, um, the third, the ninth, and the seventh, they all had ruled uh, that yes, there are rights uh, that are created um, by uh, FINRA that are enforceable under section 1983. So there's no circuit split. So the fact that the Supreme Court granted certiorari in this case uh, really indicated that they were very interested in question number one, uh, which is this big broad question that Mame um, had alluded to, um, which was, you know, they were asking the court to basically reverse about 55 years worth of very well-established uh, civil rights protections for uh, the most vulnerable people in our society, those who, um, you know, are beneficiaries of the social safety net. And that's right now about, about 100 million people. So, of course, I was very worried. I was, I, I was horrified that, <laughs> first of all, that, um, you know, that they would uh, petition the, co the court for such a, a broad uh, reevaluation of such longstanding precedent, you know, and that they were using this case. Um, you know, I was just trying to help my dad and right. I was trying to help Hoosier nursing home patients because we have a very, very uh, serious problem here in Indiana. 90% of the nursing homes are owned by county hospitals. And uh, unfortunately, um, this state uh, is engaged in some kind of scheme, a financial Medicaid scheme, where they're uh, basically getting massive amounts of money uh, on the backs of these uh, nursing home patients in what they call supplemental payments or upper upper payment limits. And um, what they're what the counties are doing, there's about 22, I think, counties or so, 
uh, that engage in this. Uh, and Marion County, actually, the, the petitioners in this case, they are the originators of this scheme and they are uh, by far the largest player. You know, they are bringing in uh, massive amounts of, of money, but on the backs of these nursing home patients, but they divert a majority of that money to other uses. So they're not using it for, directly for the care of the patients, even though they're bringing it in on, you know, because of them, you know? So what's happened here in Indiana, this state, which doesn't even have 7 million people, we get more Medicaid dollars than any other state, even the large states like New York, Texas, and even the state of California with 40 million people. Yet what's going on is we have like the worst nursing homes. And it's pretty pervasive because like I said, there's about 500 nursing homes that are owned by these county entities. And most of them are really uh, abysmal quality. And that's been my experience from direct observation, from all the research that I've done, and from anecdotal evidence that I've gathered over these last mm -hmm. uh, seven years. So this initially, yes, it started off as a battle for my father, but you know, I did find out about the scheme early on because I was trying to figure out who exactly owned uh, Valparaiso Care and Rehabilitation. It was not evident. You know, all you see is a sign for American senior communities. And as I was doing my research just on Google, you know, I came across this great book. I hope you guys are all aware of this book. It's called The Poverty Industry. I don't know if you can see it. Can you see it? No. At all? Uh, not with the background. It's, it's blurry. Oh, it's the background thing. Oh, here. Yeah. I have to put it in front of my face. The Poverty there Industry by Professor Dan Hatcher. And this book had just been released, actually, when all this happened. And I found a sample chapter on the Internet. And that sample chapter coincidentally happened to be about the petitioners in this case and their scheme. And that's when I found out what was going on. And they had quoted some um, articles from the Indianapolis Star. And I was able to get those articles. And that's when I found out what was going on. I was very upset. It was, um, I was shocked actually that to find out that there was all this money there that could go towards the, the um, you know, promoting the, the health care of our uh, seniors. And certainly what happened to my dad didn't have to happen, you know? And um, I was like, this is, this is unacceptable. I, I don't, I, I actually, I don't even know how it's legal. I still haven't figured that out, <laughs> but mm -hmm. maybe I will someday. Well, I think the, well, I'm sorry, Laura. Go ahead, Toby. I was going to say, you know, what Susie said that it became so much bigger than trying to protect her father and other residents of Indiana nursing homes, sort of illustrated, illustrated by the number of friend of the court briefs that were filed. There were, I think I counted up 24 on Susie's mm -hmm. side. And it was all kinds of organizations, as she said, that uh, care about civil rights, law professors. There's one from members of Congress, former members of Congress, former high officials in the federal government, all supporting the, the importance and the need for residents to be able to sue under 1983. There are only about four friend of the court briefs on the other side. Yeah, that's yes, that's right. And, and, and those briefs, the, the, I think there were 24, 25, something like that. They, uh, I think total had over 200 signatories on among them, you know, spread, mm -hmm. spread, uh, spread um, you know, among them. So, um, we were very, very fortunate. We came in with uh, an armada of amicus briefs, which was very, very helpful. And I really believe believe that is a big part of the reason we were able to prevail in this case, when we were able to demonstrate to the justices uh, that it would be quite catastrophic if they reversed 55 years worth of uh, civil rights protections for the most vulnerable people in our society. 
Mm -hmm. And uh, once it's because really we had to pass through that hurdle. You know, we had to save literally the social safety net. I can't even emphasize how crucial that was and what a monumental question that was. Um, and so once, you know, I mean, you know, we were able to do that, then I think, you know, they got to the second question. It was a battle against local government, state government. You have to remember the state of Indiana came in against us, you know, for uh, Marion County, along with 21 uh, red state attorneys general. Um, so they were all against us. And then they had a few more, um, you know, amicus briefs uh, supporting mm -hmm. them. Uh, so, and, you know, the pressure that I received from so many people from all these different organizations, you know, the argument was, oh, this is a conservative court and this court is ready, you know, to destroy the social safety net of the country. Uh, this was, I mean, hands down, this was what I kept hearing over and over and over again. It was, you know, I, I called them the Greek chorus of naysayers and doomsdayers. And, uh, you know, I remember talking to mommy about this because this was quite distressing for me you know, uh, sure. something like this could happen. So I really had to uh, push back against that, um, that mentality, you know, sort of that doomsday mentality and say, no, you know, this is worth fighting for. And, sure. you know, if we all coordinate and we all unite and we fight back, we can win. And we most certainly did. So I'm, I'm glad that I, I stuck to it. And, um, you know, I had the courage of my yeah. convictions in the end. So and I hope this is going to improve the care here in Indiana. I really that's really the whole point. You know, I tried to think of ways like how can we motivate these county nursing homes to improve the quality of care? Because here in Indiana, we have a very, very draconian and restrictive medical malpractice act. And it's almost impossible to hold nursing homes accountable for abuse or neglect. And so they feel like, hey, they can get away with it. And then they have all this money coming in that they're able to use for whatever reason. You know, it's really, they've, they've made this decision that, you know, nursing home patients are expendable and disposable. And they're exploiting them, really, is what they're doing. They're exploiting nursing home patients. And, you know, these are our family members. These are, our, you know, uh, friends. These are our community members, our neighbors. And, right. you know, someday you know, if we grow old enough, we ourselves might be nursing home patients. You never right. know what can happen in life. And it's not just elderly people. It's also younger people who are severely profound, profoundly ill or, or disabled in some way. So I, I feel like this was, what they're doing is quite immoral. It's immoral, unethical, and I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how it's legal even, but anyway. And so one of the issues in this case is that it applies to public nursing homes. And so Toby, maybe can you let's start with you. Can you tell us what, what that means? Because um, Indiana's uh, unique in that sense and that so many of the homes are publicly owned. That's not the case in a lot of states. So what, what does that mean um, for people listening? Uh, you're muted, Toby. All right, something interfered. Uh, well, what it means is that only only residents in publicly owned facilities can use the Tlefsky decision and file a 1983 action in federal court for violation of rights guaranteed by the federal law. So that mostly means in most uh, states, county owned facilities. Most of the facilities that are publicly owned are county owned facilities. Other people have other legal theories. They can go into state court, they can do other things, but generally they will not be able to use Tlefsky to go into federal court under section 1983. Mm. And it, it, in terms of, um, you know, 
the importance of, of this case for residents and families um, and their ability to bring lawsuits. I mean, that doesn't affect their ability to bring um, lawsuits in other cases. It might just be that they have another, they might need another theory um, in order to bring a suit. Um, and mommy, could you maybe speak, you know, speak to that a little bit? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I think we're looking at a combination of things. First of all, ab absolutely. People bring lawsuits to, um, to rectify when there's been abuse in nursing facilities under a variety of different laws and statutes. Sometimes it'll be a state tort law. It might be, um, you know, if, if the violation involves other rights like Americans with Disabilities Act, they might bring that as well, right? So um, it might be under consumer protection statutes. I mean, so there's other tools in the arsenal, if you will, in order to bring a case if the person is not in a public run facility. Having said that though, one thing I think that's particularly powerful about this case is to the extent that um, those of us who litigate these kind of cases, as we point to saying what the standard the nursing facility should have used um, when they were basically providing treatment and care for a resident, to the extent that we point to the Nursing Home Reform Act, we can now also say and in 2023, the Supreme Court reaffirmed that these are rights that the nursing facility must protect and promote. And these are rights that are absolutely guaranteed by this law. So I know for me, even for a case that's not specifically a publicly run facility, it still is going to have very strong, powerful weight in terms of you know, when I make my arguments and how we're trying to be persuasive um, and really outlining the conduct that the diversity facility should have had towards the residents. So um, again, there's other statutes that people use in order to right wrongs. But having mm -hmm. said that, this is also still gonna be powerful, even though you can't necessarily cite it to use the section 1983, you can cite it to reemphasize how important these rights are. And, the, really and that this important. is the standard that people have to be meeting. Um, for residents. And, you know, I think one of the things that we've talked about um, internally and, and um, but, uh, you know, the Nursing Home Reform Act also contains an enforcement mechanism through the a regulatory mechanism. Yeah. Um, and so, Toby, could you just tell people uh, a little bit about that? And, you know, because that that's certainly one way that people try to, you know, have their rights protected is through this regulatory enforcement system. Which was important to the defendants too, I mean, to the dissenters right. in the case, yes. Well, I think that the 1987 nursing home reform law sets out a pretty good approach. It has three things, I think. First, it says there has to be a range of remedies, range of penalties imposed against facilities that are violating the law. When the law was passed in 1987, uh, the only federal sanction available was termination. So facilities were either in or out. There was nothing else the federal government could do. And the federal government was pretty reluctant to terminate facilities because that would result in the displacement of residents from their homes. So having a new range of penalties, civil money penalties, denial of payment for new admissions, monitors, receivership, all kinds of things that can be done, direct a plan of correction to tell facilities what to do was one important thing. The second important thing was to say, we wanna have larger penalties for more serious problems, 
for problems that are repeated, for problems that are not corrected. And third, the states have to have a process for trying to figure out what to do in any given situation. The problem with enforcement isn't the, what Congress put in the law, but implementation. I think in general, enforcement is very, very weak. Most problems that are cited, if they're cited at all, are called no harm, like 95%. If there's no harm, there's usually no penalty. And the best example to me is a 2020 report by the GAO about infection control deficiencies between 2013 and 2017, so before the pandemic. This was the number one deficiency in the country. Practically every nursing home was cited with infection control at least once in the five-year period, and usually in multiple years. But what the GAO found was only 1% of those facilities had any kind of financial penalty. And so this industry, which is basically a for-profit industry, responds to financial penalties. If there's no penalty, it's pretty much ignored. And that's the problem with enforcement. It's very tolerant of poor care and calls things no harm. So I think we, you know, that's one of the things the advocates are constantly doing, trying to beef up enforcement and make the public system work better because not every uh, resident has a family like the Tlefskys that is that, you know, able and willing to go forward with litigation. A lot of people don't have anybody. We really need the public regulatory system to provide protection for residents uh, and especially for those who can't do it on their own. But, mm. you know, that's, it's also, I would say, this is one of my favorite parts of the law. The law says the general duty and responsibility of the secretary, two things, ensure that the standards of care and their enforcement are adequate to protect residents, health, safety, welfare, and rights, and to promote the effective and efficient use of public money. When the Senate Aging Committee had a lot of hearings in the late 90s. Senator Grassley would say, it's our money. We have a right to get better care. We're paying for this. We want better care. And I think that's also the secretary's responsibility. So our enforcement system is weak, but it is critically important to get it strengthened. And you know, despite the fact that, um, that there is a regulatory enforcement system, it's still really important to be able to bring lawsuits, wouldn't you say? And Mame, you know, why is it important that people can, can bring lawsuits even though there's this other system in place? Well, I think a couple of things. First, I think that the regulatory system and private enforcement do not serve the same exact purpose. I think part of what the regulatory um, survey and enforcement process is to determine and assess the facility's compliance with the standards and the law um, you know, even the way the process works, they take a sample, they look at the sample and they do this. They, they're not looking at every specific resident. Um, when they do this, they come in with eight, every, what, 15 months to do their surveys, right? And then sometimes with a complaint investigation, um, they're supposed to be coming in. Whereas the purpose of private litigation is to vindicate, vindicate and enforce a resident's rights. So therefore, even if the regulatory enforcement was perfect, it still would not make the individual resident that had been harmed whole. In addition, I have to say, I think because the residents are the people who are actually living in the facility, they're the ones who really have the firsthand knowledge and experience of all the abuses and violations that are occurring. And they're the ones who can best tell the story as to what exactly happened to them. 
um, who did what when, right? And they should be able to go into court and then use something like a section 1983 or other rules to be able to impact change. Because one of the things about section 1983 is that it also has injunctive relief. And when I say injunctive relief, what that means is that it doesn't only provide, let's say relief for the individual person, but actually they can also ask to actually have change in terms of some of the conduct of the facility to help change for everybody actually at that facility. So I think that because regulatory enforcement and private litigation serves some different purposes, there's another reason why, e even if the regulatory enforcement was perfect, which it is not, um, it, you know, it's important to also for individuals to be able to bring cases, um, you know, to make sure that they're able to enforce their rights. I also That's just wanted to say that in terms of um, the regulatory enforcement, this is something, the lack of the inadequacy of regulatory enforcement, that has been noted for years by various um, government auditors, the Government Accountability Office, the, U um, the Office of Inspector General of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And these reports are consistently showing exactly what Toby talked about when she was mentioning that, you know, for example, there's a GAO report that shows that they, uh, I think only was 8% of abuse deficiencies that had been noted actually had any kind of enforcement action. Um, you know, some specific gaps with CMS with regards to their actual lack of referral, um, not, not noticing that nursing facilities were not actually referring when they were suspected incidents of abuse to law enforcement authorities. So there, there's like huge gaps that have occurred that have been noted um, that makes may end up having the regulatory enforcement being lacking. And so therefore you also need to have private um, litigation to really go hand in hand. Um, I do also want to note that in the Supreme Court opinion, that's if we could, don't mind us nerding that a little bit, um, the <laughs> Justice Jackson very clearly saw that regulatory enforcement alone and, and you know, rejected the argument that regulatory enforcement alone um, should be satisfactory in terms of being able to vindicate a resident's rights. Yeah, and just about, oh. sure, go ahead, Susie. Now, I was just going to recount my own personal experience here. Um, you know, we, when my dad was patient dumped, we did follow the uh, administrative process that was outlined in FINRA. We did an appeal uh, to the Indiana State Department of Health. They sent up an administrative law judge to hear this appeal. Uh, we had a five-hour hearing uh, with this judge uh, a couple of weeks later. He issued a decision in our favor. I took this decision uh, to the nursing home administrator and I said, okay, I've got my decision here. It's in our favor. I'd like to make arrangements to bring my dad back to Valparaiso. And um, at that point in time, she directed me to call an assistant uh, general counsel at American Senior Communities, whereupon this lady told me that she was going to make the decision um, as to whether my dad would be readmitted. And I informed her that the decision has been made for her. That was the entire hearing, <laughs> you know? Wow. And um, so they refused, they refused to readmit him. They refused to abide by this decision. I did contact Indiana State Department of Health to ask them to do something about this, you know, to enforce this decision. They told me they, that they do not enforce these decisions, that in fact, I would have to go hire a private attorney and take them to state court to get this enforced. 
And so this started my battle with them uh, because I was telling them, no, you in fact can't enforce these decisions. <laughs> like literally, this is the whole point of FINRA, you know, to, to avoid litigation. And you're talking about very elderly, sick people, you know, who don't have that much left in life. You know, they can't be wrapped up in litigation for years. You know, this is one of the main points, you know, to expedite this kind of these summary procedures to expedite, you know, any kind of wrong that's been done so that the, uh, the individual is not uh, harmed too much, right? But Indiana State Department would not do anything. Uh, they stopped taking my phone calls. They stopped answering my emails. And that's when I realized uh, that, wow, I need some allies here. I've got to find some allies. And that's when I came across the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care and also uh, AARP uh, Legal Foundation. And that's when I first reached out to all of you um, for help because I, I was just shocked. You know, I did go to my state senator. I went to my state representative. You know, I ended up going to my congressman, uh, actually to my U.S. congressman. And uh, he asked me to write a letter describing everything that I'd been through and what was going on. And I, and I wrote a very detailed scathing letter against the Indiana State Department of Health and their lack of enforcement of the nursing home re regulations. Because remember, I had also complained about the chemical restraint and they sent me a letter saying no deficiency. And in fact, I know that there, <laughs> there was definitely a violation here. You know, I, I consulted with, uh, you know, a couple of neurologists actually. So, uh, and, and, a, and a psychiatrist also. So, it, and, and I, I myself know, I mean, you know, you can, you can look these right. things up, you know, if somebody get, is getting that much medication, you know, that'll knock a horse <laughs> out, right. you know then, then you, you, you know, you, you know, so um, Indiana State Department would not do anything. I mean, in my opinion, Indiana State Department of Health is really captured by the Indiana Healthcare Association, which is the lobby group for the nursing homes. And that's very common, probably, you know, in a lot of states, um, you know, they have direct access to uh, the executive branch, you know, the governor, the governor's healthcare people, and, you know, also the commissioner for the Indiana State Department of Health. And so these political appointees uh, and, really are carrying out the wishes more of their of the lobbyists for the nursing homes rather than abiding by federal law. So that was a big problem. Well, and certainly it, it shows, um, you know, the fact that you weren't able to get regulatory response um, for the, the problems that your family was facing, that other options were necessary. And I think that goes back to both what you know, also Toby and Mame were reinforcing that we need multiple options and multiple systems um, available to help protect the rights of individuals, um, particularly when we're talking about frail, vulnerable people um, who are relying on others for care and services. And um, as, you know, as we're talking about here, um, well, we're uh, certainly thrilled that uh, the Supreme Court uh, found the decision that it did. I think, you know, everyone was cheering um, when when the case came down and, and we started reading through the decisions. And, you know, as Mame said, um, it, it's not an important case, you know, for, uh, for the primary reason in terms of access, you know, for people who live in public nursing homes, but it also reinforces the standard of care that, that people should be able to expect and, and has really wide and, and broad reach, you know, in so many ways. And so, um, you know, Susie, we, we certainly, you know, appreciate that you, you and your family were um, willing to bring this case and, and uh, to, to pursue it um, in this way. And, um, 
certainly as we think about, you know, the importance of uh, protecting people's uh, care and health is something we've all been working for. And, and, you know, it's just nice to have another, another thing to point to, um, to show, you know, that people really, you know, their rights are to be respected and, um, and honored and, and that people do have recourse. Um, and yeah, and I, sometimes I you know, the, the good guys I, win, right? The, the good guys do win, but I also want to really acknowledge, you know, the massive amount of uh, help I had, you know, in this case. I mean, we got very, very lucky because uh, a, a very big law firm stepped in to help us with this case, to take it to the Seventh Circuit, and then, of course, uh, to defend our big win, you know, as the respondents in the Supreme Court case, which is a very uncomfortable position to be in. And that's Arnold and Porter. And the team was led by um, very bright, young, uh, in, extremely intelligent, um, visionary, I think, uh, appellate attorney by the name of Andrew Tutt. And, um, you know, a lot of people didn't think we could possibly win this case. But, you know, under his leadership, his guidance, and, uh, you know, really his fortitude, we were able to prevail. He he left no stone unturned. I mean, he would frequently use the phrase, we're going to boil the ocean <laughs> to make sure we find every everything going back to 1870s, you know, um, Congress, basically, that passed, you know, uh, Section 1983. And, um, you know, without uh, Andrew and his entire team at Arnold and Porter, you know, I don't know how, how successful we would have been, really, because they put a massive amount of work um, and into this case, it's just really unbelievable. So I, I'm so grateful to them. And of course, I'm so grateful to all our amicus supporters, because I mean, it really does take a team, uh, like an army, basically, of people to come in and win these kind of cases, because we, we really were the underdogs. I mean, we were definitely the quintessential David, you know, you know, David versus Goliath story. We were we are David basically, and uh, it did take an army of people. and And I think these kind of cases, you know, where we're fighting to preserve our rights, they are worth the fight. You know, we beat back this attempt by um, government officials, you know, and you know, a corporation essentially to deprive the American people of their longstanding right. Um, and fortunately, um, the Supreme Court. Um, you know, decided, no, that is not acceptable in this country. This is a country of the rule of law. And so I'm hoping that, you know, eventually maybe we can uh, convince Congress to add in a cause of action in FINRA so that everyone will in fact be covered and not necessarily have to go through um, section 1983. Really that's the, the best way. You know, we have to protect our elderly. I mean, you know, I often saw these cases really as the battle for the soul of our country because, you know, you judge a society based on how they treat their most vulnerable people. And I was really worried, like, my gosh, if we if they decide to go against us, what is that going to say about our country, about, about our society, you know? But, you know, I had I, honestly, I had a lot of trust in this court it may be very odd to some people, you know, especially all the groups that were, you know, coming to ask me to extricate myself from this case. I decided, you know, that I um, I did not agree with their assessment of this court, and I I basically took a big leap of faith. And, you know, I, I I'm so happy. I'm so happy with this outcome. It's it's um it really is a monumental case and a monumental victory for the little guys. So, and for the it, people, it definitely for the people is. of the United States and especially for Hoosiers. 
Well, I would certainly encourage those listening to go and read the decision as well as um, the amicus briefs and MAME and the team at AARP Foundation Litigation drafted a really excellent brief and yes. Consumer Voice uh, joined on to that one and Toby um, wrote another really excellent brief um, as well. And so I, I would highly encourage folks to, to go and read um, all of them. You can get more information about the case, um, certainly you know, out on the internet, but uh, we've got it up on the Consumer Voice website. Um, people could go there um, at the www.theconsumervoice.org for more information. Um, and we can also um, be sure to link to the various briefs that I mentioned um, earlier. But I'd like to really take this opportunity to thank you, Susie and Mame and Toby for joining today's episode and talking through this important case and the important decision. And, you know, really it does, um, you know, give us another step forward and another tool in the belt to advocate on behalf of people receiving care and services. And I think really reemphasizes, you know, the important work that's being done and um, the importance of the, the Reform Act and, and how it needs, you know, it is the standard of care um, and does need to be enforced no matter which mechanism we use to do that, whether it's through the courts or, through the regulatory system is something we're all working towards. So thanks to all of you for everything that you're doing, for all of your work on this case, um, and for joining me today to talk about this and look forward to continuing to work with all of you and talk to you again soon. So thank you thank so you much. Thank you for all your help. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for joining us on Pursuing Quality Long-Term Care. This podcast is a program of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. Make sure to visit our website, theconsumervoice.org slash pursuingquality, where you can subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and find more information and resources. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode.